I have enjoyed uh, uh, being home this weekend. Let me make one change there. I love the sermon. Y'all come on in. If you need a, a handout, raise your hand. And we've got some. We need the riddles down here. Need some handouts. Who's what? Oh, he was too messed up to grab one, so we need one for Mike and Debbie. Um, I loved uh, hearing uh, uh, Brother Bassanio this morning, and I thought it was so humorous the way he fits in to his conversation uh, opportunities to bear witness. Mark, over here, yeah. Um, I, I've... Yeah, well, that's okay. She was making breakfast this morning. Um, I, I was, you know, you sit there and you listen to these sermons. He's got a really good way of preaching in a way where you, you kind of think, okay, how does that fit into my world and what I do? And I couldn't help but think, uh, uh, those of you who are in the class know that I'm, I'm stuck in, um, I don't know a polite way to say it, so I'll just say Atlantic City. Um, for, I've been up there now for about three weeks and I've probably got two to three weeks left to go and I, I come home on weekends and and we leave again at 2 o'clock today to go back up there. And I'm trying this lawsuit right now with a whole bunch of lawyers. Uh, we've got about 30 rooms of this uh, hotel. And um, uh, I've got probably eight or nine lawyers from my firm up there. The firm that's uh, working with us has got probably 10 lawyers at least up there. And one thing that, that uh, uh, sets our firm apart from some of the others, at least we've got the... the wonderful opportunity to have some, a uh, number of my lawyers are, are good, solid Christian believers. And uh, uh, lawyers like Philip and, and Dara Hager, who edits our Sunday school lesson, and uh, uh, Dr. Bob uh, uh, has been up there, and, and some others. And so that's really nice. <clears throat> and the other lawyers that, that work for me that maybe aren't Christians at least know uh, uh, where we come from and what we mean. The lawyers who we're working with uh, have a different uh, way of talking and a, and a different approach to life. And it's, uh, uh, it's been fun for me to have a chance to try and engage them a little bit. Um, one of their favorite expressions up there is Jesus Christ. And they just say it. I mean, just Jesus Christ this and Jesus Christ that. So I've taken to every time they say it, uh, responding with, Where? <laughs> <laughs> And it's taken about a week and a half, but they've kind of quit saying it because they're getting kind of a little tired of saying, Jesus Christ, me go, where? And, and the first time I did it, uh, one of them said, what do you mean? I said, well, I, I want to see him. He said, oh, I, I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't mean I saw him. I said, oh, oh, okay. About 10 minutes later, Jesus Christ, where? It's almost become a joke up there now, so now instead it's God this and God that. And that never seems to make sense if you really think about the sentence in which they use it. And finally, one of them said the other day when something happened that was pretty good for us, he said, well, thank God. And I looked at him and said, yes, let's. And he looked at me and I, he said, well, I didn't mean thank God, God. I said, oh, well, I, okay. So it's... <laughs> <clears throat> all, in, in, uh, uh, all in a day's work. Um, we've been going through church history, and uh, uh, we've got some wonderful things. Have any of y'all ever heard of the Christian musician John Michael Talbot? Yeah. 
Okay, well, he's um, uh, someone who has been like reading some of these lessons that I email with him back and forth on. And uh, he uh, uh, wanted me to tell our class. Uh, now, John Michael Talbot is a, a, a kind of an all-encompassing Christian musician, but he specifically is, is a Catholic, uh, attending the Catholic, uh, attending a Catholic church. He's, he's part of the Catholic uh, uh, branch of, of uh, faith. And uh, uh, he said that it's very, very rare in even the Catholic Church, but especially in the Protestant Church, based upon all of his travels around the world, for people to take time out to learn about the early church. And he said that in his life, it was one of the most compelling parts of his personal study and devotion. Um, uh, and so he wanted our class to know that we are in his prayers. And uh, uh, at some point in time, if it works out, he may even try to come make a visit uh, here to the class. I don't know that it will um, because he's very busy. But as I have been traversing back and forth with him, I was thinking about this morning's class. And, and uh, what we want to try and do is start looking at the origins of the canon or the Bible. And this will take a couple of weeks to do to catch us up. But even though we're going to do a couple weeks, this is a lesson. Charles uh, came up to Atlantic City and we were visiting about it the other night. And this is a lesson that really unfolds over the centuries because the Bible itself is something that we so often take for granted. But it's something that people have literally fought and died for. And uh, 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 it's, it's a, a treasured history the way God has secured for us Scripture. I can tell you, though, Scripture is very holy, and it's not just holy here in Champions Forest Baptist Church. Uh, Dr. Bassanio had a stand up out of reverence to read the Word this morning, and I thought, how fitting, because the slides I'd already done, and if we had gone to a Jewish synagogue this morning, uh, in a Jewish synagogue, the, the, the scrolls, the Hebrew Scriptures, are, are kept in an ark, and usually the ark is down front and center. Of the, of the synagogue itself. This is an ark. It's a really bad picture, but those are doors that are, are closed, and there's usually a curtain, and behind the curtain you'll find the scrolls. And in the service at a synagogue, those scrolls are taken from the ark, uh, which is not like the ark of the covenant, but it's what they call the ark that holds the scrolls, recognizing the ark of the covenant had held the Ten Commandments. Um, but, but those scrolls are taken over to what's called the bima, which is their pulpit equivalent. And the scrolls are presented there for reading, and they're read from a scroll. It's a very holy part of a Jewish service. If we had gone to an Orthodox church, whether Greek Orthodox or Russian Orthodox or just the American Orthodox church, the gospel typically is carried down the aisle in the church service. And as it's carried down the aisle uh, in reverence before it's read, the statement is proclaimed, wisdom all stand, let us hear the holy gospel. And everyone stands up out of respect to hear the holy gospel. If instead of an Orthodox church we look at a Catholic liturgy, the Catholic liturgy, the gospel reading is preceded by the, the, the proclamation, the Lord be with you, and the people answer, and also with you. And then a reading from the Holy Gospel according to, whether it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the response, glory to you, Lord. It, it, it's, it's a moment of, of reverence in that church as well. If we go to a Reformed church, 
uh, uh, the Church of Scotland, uh, a lot of uh, uh, old line Presbyterian churches. In a Reformed church, typically, the, 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 the scriptures will be carried down the aisle. And the minister, the preacher, follows the scriptures at a respectful distance. Because the minister is, in the true sense of the word minister, a servant. And a lot of old line Reformed churches will have the initials after the minister's name on the placard with, with the initials D V, I mean VDM, which stands for Verbi Divini Ministeri, a minister of God's word, because he's a servant of God's word. And so he follows down and he preaches from it. Now, my question to you is why such reverence? For a book? Well, the answer is this is our Christian canon. This is the God's Word that's been given to us. We, as people of faith, believe there's a book by Francis Schaeffer entitled, He is There and He is Not Silent. And Francis Schaeffer makes a compelling argument that not only do we have a God, but we have a God who communicates. God didn't merely create the world and set us on this little dirt clod spinning around in outer space to live our lives. God reaches down and communicates with us. And a principal source of communication, we of faith say, is His divinely inspired Word. That's what we call the Christian canon. And so we... That's not it. One in. I'm sorry, it's the Christian canon. Uh, we look at... That's not it either. <laughs> Picture that. Um, we look at the Christian... There it is. The Christian canon. Okay? Now, those little things are not just to lighten the day. That's going to help you remember the word canon. Okay? But when you remember it, don't just think a big gun, because technically it's the sword. It's not the gun. But think uh, one N, okay, and not that, but canon. Well, what is the word canon? Where did we get it from? Ah, I can answer that. The Christian canon comes originally, the word canon comes from a, a Semitic word, which Hebrew is a Semitic language. The Semitic languages are the ones of the Phoenicians who came up with the alphabet first, shipped it up to Greece, remember, the the. the the, the different tribes that lived in the Israeli area were an early language. They didn't use vowels. They only had consonants. And so K-N-H, Kana, is probably how it was pronounced. But Kana is the origin of our word canon. And do you know what it meant? Reeds. Like reeds and rushes. Those were cannas. We have a plant now that grows up that looks similar called a canna. Okay? It grows up kind of tall, has the pretty flowers. Canna. That word got taken by the Greeks. And the Greeks changed it up a little bit, and the Greeks used the word canon. But when the Greeks used the word, do you know what they'd use those rushes for? They'd make marks on them, and they'd use them for measuring. These are our original yardsticks. They really are. And so the canon, it wasn't as much the stick itself as the measurements on the yardstick. That was the Greek for canon. 
And so that's what the word is that was appropriated by the early church in talking about Scripture. Because what Scripture is, it is, in a sense, the writings that measure and define our faith. These are the writings that we use to to sit next to our faith and measure it. You want to know if your faith's really three foot two inches? You take your cannon and you stick it next to it and you see if it measures out. You want to know if your doctrine and your beliefs are legitimate and right? You take your Bible, your cannon, and you open it up and you measure it out. You want to know if your faith is truly in God and His deeds and what He's done for you? You take your Bible, you open it up, and you measure it out. Because the Christian canon is, in essence, the Bible. Okay? So, now, by the way, Bible, just for free, comes from the Latin word biblia, which means books. Okay? Because the Bible is a a collection of books. So when we talk about uh, Bibles, I have a Bible down here. And you say, uh, uh, the B-I-B-L-E, that's the book for me? That's really dead on, except Biblia is plural. I mean, that's the books for me. I stand alone on the Word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. Bible is just an English-sized word from the Latin word for books. Okay, Now, there are two Christian canons, by and large. Um, there is a Catholic canon, and you can buy a Catholic Bible. I pulled this one off of uh, Amazon.com. Typically, the Catholic Bible will come in one of three translations, either what's called the New American Bible, not the same as the New American Standard, okay, which is a Protestant Bible, but the New American Bible, you can buy it as a New Jerusalem Bible, You can also buy a Revised Standard Version or New Revised Standard Version because you can get that in a Catholic canon as well as a Protestant canon. The Protestant canon comes in 18 gazillion different translations. Um, The NIV is one of the most prolifically used in history, but they go back back, uh, some ways. And by the way, you can get a King James. I left that out. You can get a King James in a Catholic Bible as well as in a Protestant Bible but uh, uh, not that many. What's the difference between the Catholic Bible and the Protestant Bible? The Catholic Bible has everything that's in the Protestant Bible plus what we call the Apocrypha. The Apocrypha. We spent, in, if you were in the church history, no, in the biblical literacy class, we spent four or six, I don't remember, weeks on the Apocrypha going through the different writings and talking about what they were. And I'm glad to get you those lessons uh, uh, at some point in time if you'll communicate to me or Philip about it. But but, uh, uh, we'll just in brief look at that this morning. Um, Whether you're looking at the Catholic canon or whether you're looking at the Protestant canon, either way, they're both canons. Both of them are the measure and rule of faith and life. If we go to one of the most famous theologians the Catholic Church ever produced, it was St. Thomas Aquinas. Uh, uh, not the most, but one of the clearly, uh, you know, one of the top five, no doubt. In the 1200s, he wrote, and he said, Canonical Scripture alone is the rule of faith. And there's a pun on that word rule. 
He's writing in Latin. The Latin word for canon is very much still also uh, canon. It, it's not that much different than the Greek word. We do get cane from it, by the way, the English word cane, because that's uh, uh, sugar cane, and, and cane grows like a reed for what it's worth. But anyway, uh, canonical scripture alone is the rule. It's the measuring rod. It's the measuring stick. It's the rule of faith. Go to the Westminster Confession of Faith that we'll look at in some detail, uh, God willing, when we get to the, the 1600s. And it's one of the Protestant uh, uh, big statements of, of what Protestantism believes and stands for. And in section one, uh, uh, I believe subsection two, it says that the, the biblical books, the 66 books of the, of the Protestant scripture, canon, are all given by inspiration of God to be the rule of life. It's the rule, again. It's what we use to measure. So how did it get put together? I've got a Bible here. I mean, did, was this just, uh, 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 you know, somebody started writing, and where did they get this from, and, and, and how did they get a copy, and, and how do we know what's in here is what was in here to start with, and who decided what's in, and who decided what's not in, and, and how do we know that it's accurate anyway? Well, those are questions that we'll answer throughout as we continue to work in our church history literacy. But specifically this week, I want to focus on the Old Testament. Who decided what went into the Christian Old Testament? Next week, we're going to look at the New Testament. Okay? But first, we've got a little extra time. So we have an issue to discuss. Dr. Bob is not here today. Dr. Bob is famous for asking me a question. His question was, why do we call the New Testament the New Testament when it's 2,000 years old? Shouldn't we go ahead and have like the real Old Testament and then just kind of the Old Testament? Or couldn't we at least call it the Older Testament and the Testament? Why are we calling something that's 2,000 years old new? And who came up with that anyway? All right, now... I've done a survey. I have surveyed biblical scholar friends of mine to ask them who came up with the term Old Testament and New Testament. And I didn't survey dummies. I surveyed really smart people, like Edward Fudge, who wears a bow tie. <laughs> I asked... Charles Mickey, who like is a, was a paper away from a PhD in this stuff. I asked uh, um, several buddies that I went to, to, to school with who have multiple divinity degrees now. So now I ask you, anybody have a clue? Who came up with Old and New Testament first out of this group? We're all, oh, well, Dale knows because he's been reading the paper. Put your hand down, Dale. Dale, Dale helps me with the paper. Um, okay, anybody else that hasn't been cheating? Okay, you will because we're going to take a moment and discuss it. Old and New Testaments. There is a word in the Bible called covenant. And you'll read about covenant in the Old Testament a lot. You'll read about covenant in the New Testament a lot, right? Covenant's not a foreign word to you. 
covenant. For example, in Hebrews 9, it says, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant. He has died to set them free from the sins under the first covenant. Okay? And, and using Jeremiah, uh, uh, the writer of Hebrews, talks about the new covenant that we have versus the old covenant. Okay? The Greek word for covenant is diatheke. It's a legal word, so it fits in kind of with Bassanio's sermon this morning because he was all over the law. It's a legal word, and what a covenant means, it's a legal instrument. If you wanted to draft an agreement, let's say you wanted to do a business deal or you were going to uh, buy some wives for your sons or you were going to, uh, they did that kind of stuff, sell some wives for your, <laughs> you know, to, to get them off your hands. Uh, yeah, I mean, whatever you were going to do, legally, you could have an instrument or, or if you wanted to buy a piece of property, a title or a deed drawn up by lawyers. They would drop a diatheke. The, the, the thing about the Old Testament is when God came to Moses, He came to Moses on the mountain and, and to Israel as a people to enter into a covenant with them. And it was a covenant by blood. Now, very often these covenants, the reason you'd put them into writing is because one party had more responsibility than the other party. And that's clearly the key with God. But Jesus came and said that he had, and, and Paul writes of Jesus in Corinthians, blood of a new covenant. Because there's a new arrangement in a sense, a new term of understanding between God and man. And, and, and this is a diatheke. And in the Old Testament, there was a covenant between God and man, but in Jesus Christ, a new covenant. And that's what the writer of Hebrews says. Now, there's a Latin word for this, a diatheke, a legal agreement. It could also be a will. You want to draw up a will. Here's what I'm going to leave when I'm gone. Okay. In Latin, there are two words for this, instrumentum, which is a legal instrument, or testamentum which is a, a legal instrument or even a will. You, you talk about executing your last will and testament. That's using the Latin word. Testamentum is your will. Okay? So the Latin words that could be translated as covenant are either instrumentum or testamentum. You with me? It's kind of complicated. That's okay. Hang on. It gets better. Because now comes Tertullian, the trial lawyer turned theologian. We talked about him last week, remember? Tertullian, the guy from Carthage in North Africa. Um, uh, the first Christian scholar to really start writing in Latin. Carthage, North Africa, is very, very close to uh, um, uh, Rome or to Italy. And... Uh, he was the first scholar in the church to start writing in Latin, and he wrote a number of books. In addition to being a, a really good trial lawyer, he was a, a, quite a, a, an incredible theologian, one of the best the early church produced. And when he wrote, he wrote in Latin, and he wrote two books. One of them was called Against Marcion. Remember we studied Marcion and his Gnosticism? Tertullian wrote a big old write-up against him. And another one was against another fella, um, well, here, I've got him up here, against Praxeus. And, and these are two books that, that, Mar, that Tertullian wrote. And when Tertullian wrote about them, 
he wrote about the two testaments. And he wrote about, or he'd use instrumentum also as well as testament. So in the Marcion one, he said, you know, there's the old instrumentum and the new instrumentum, and Marcion thinks that the two had nothing to do with each other, and here's why he's wrong. Or he would write in against Praxeus, there's the Old Testament and there is the New Testament. Because these were legal words. And he was a lawyer. And so the lawyer used these legal words to talk about the Old Covenant or the Old Testament in Latin, testamenta, and the New Covenant or the New Testamentum, the testamenta as he would say. Um, Those he wrote about. He's a lawyer. And he's the first one to use the term. And as the church began to write in Latin, leaving Greek behind, the church seized on those terms and they became labels for the Old Testamentum and the New Testamentum. And now in English, we just call them the Old Testament and the New Testament. And that's where they come from. Now, let's look then at the Old Testament. The Old Testament before Christ... um, was not a book, right? We know that, don't we? They didn't have books then. Books started around the time of Christ, maybe a little before there's some evidence. The way they started doing books is they would take sheets of uh, papyrus, parchment, and uh, uh, probably parchment first, but then papyrus later because it worked better, and they would put like, they'd take four sheets. Let's see if we can do a, a little... They would take uh, four sheets of parchment and they would put them together like this, okay? And then they would take some some, uh, thread and sew it right down the middle. And after they'd sewn it in the middle, they would fold it in half. And those are the early books. And then they could take it and they could write on each side. Scrolls, you only wrote on one side, okay? But this, they could write on both sides. And it was an incredible thing. Now, the the general world didn't have much use for it because the general world, you know, the the Hebrews had their scriptures and your scrolls could be, the maximum length of a scroll was 35 feet, okay? And so you could take your scrolls and you could read them this way or you could read them that way. But you got a 35-foot scroll and you can only write on one side, which, by the way, trivia, is one of the bizarre things about the book of Revelation because they talk about a scroll that's written front and back and that's got symbolic meaning, but that's for another class and another day. Generally, <laughs> generally, uh, 35-foot scrolls is why Luke wrote, this is tons of trivia here, why Luke wrote two books, Luke and Acts, instead of one, because he ran out of scroll. It takes 35 feet to write Luke. It's the longest gospel. It takes another 35 to write Acts. Okay, that's why it just seems to end and why he picks right back up talking to Theophilus about what he'd already written. Okay, you got 35 feet. So 35-foot scroll, you get a scroll. Try this sometime at home. Grab one of your scrolls. If you don't have one, get a, 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 a roll of wax paper out and decide you want to read something in the middle. You got one hand unrolling, you got one hand rolling, and it's not easy. Now, if you're just reading a story, like you want to read some narrative, or if you've just got a short little instrument and it's just a small piece of paper, or if you've got, that's one thing. But the church, for really the first time in history, put together long books 
35 feet scrolls, that people wanted to go back and reference all the time. You want to cite chapter and verse, even though they didn't have chapter and verse in them yet. And so the church, secular historians will tell you this, the church more than anyone else was responsible for the development of books because the church found it so much handier to be able to say, hang on, let me see what Paul said about that, Corinthians. I remember something. You can flip it right open, and it's right there. And so the church was responsible for that, but before Christ, you don't really have books. you got a bunch of scrolls. And that's got implications for the way the Bible was put together. These are five Hebrew scrolls. These are the first five books of, of the Bible, the first five scrolls. If you look at what the Hebrews had before the time of Christ, sorry, y'all, i got to keep track of time here. Um, here's the way it laid out. They had five basic scrolls that were called the law or Torah. You need to know the word Torah. Say it, Torah, Torah, not, not like... Torah, Torah, Torah. They didn't have an H. Okay? This is just the Jewish word for law. Torah. The five scrolls that made up the Torah were... Yeah, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The five books of Moses. The first five books of the Bible. These are the Torah. This is the law. This was the Jewish law. And so they had five scrolls that were the law. And we don't know when those were ultimately put together. We don't know when and how they were ultimately written. You say, well, I, Moses wrote. Well, Moses didn't write all of them because it's got the death of Moses. And he didn't write about dying and what happened after he was dead. Okay? There's no doubt that God gave the law to Moses. God gave Moses the commandments. God had revelation for Moses, which is contained in those books. And they are the books of Moses. But... Somehow, over the process of Israel's history, they were put together, and we know that from looking at them linguistically. There was writing at the time of Moses, but certainly not the kind of writing that is in those books. But God's Spirit is working through prophets, and so there's no doubt God put those together, and the oral tradition itself was something so important to the Jews that it had to be done exactly right, that we conservatives recognize the hand of God was there and those words are accurate in what they say. But how they were put together has been lost some to history. That there were five scrolls of the law is apparent and not lost. Not only is there the law, but there was another division of, of scrolls for the Jews at the time of Christ. And that was called the prophets. All of Scripture were by prophets, or it wouldn't have been Jewish Scripture. But the law, those were the special five books of Moses. And the prophets, they were everything else. That's why Jesus says, he was asked, remember, what's the greatest commandment? They were testing him. And he said, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. No, no, they said, they didn't say what's the greatest commandment. They said, what's the greatest commandment in the Torah? in the five books of Moses, in the law. And Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, quoting Deuteronomy 6, 5. And then Jesus goes ahead and gives them a freebie. He says, I'll tell you the second greatest commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. And he quotes that from Leviticus 19. So Jesus, you see, quotes the law when they said, what's the greatest one in the law? But do you remember what Jesus said afterwards? He said, and on this rests all of the law 
and the prophets. And if you look at your NIV, it'll capitalize the word law and the word prophets there because the NIV translators recognize Jesus is talking about the two big sections of Scripture. And Jesus is saying all of the Old Testament, what we would call the Old Testament, all Jewish Scripture rests on those two commandments. All right? So for the Jews, you had the law and you had the prophets. Now, there was another starting at about the time of Christ, there was some people were carving out a third section of Scripture in the Old Testament that what, what the Jews would call other writings. And we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, i got to keep moving. The Septuagint. Let's talk about that real quick. Kind of a new subject, but it's still the Old Testament, okay? Alexander the Great conquers the world. This is uh, what he conquered. He left Italy alone. Um, he, he, uh, uh, he went ahead and took Iraq out and Iran, too, while he was at, at it. Went all the way over into India. Um, he didn't do much in the Saudi Arabian desert because they didn't need the gas back then. Um, <laughs> otherwise, he'd have been down there, too. Um, but he took over Egypt, and in Egypt, he f founded a city called Alexandria in 331 B.C. And even though we think Egypt, this was a Greek city. He was a Greek. He was a Macedonian, which is the northern part of Greece. And he brought the Greek language there, and he said, I'm going to create the greatest city in the world. And Alexandria he created, and he brought the Greek language with him. And Alexandria set up the largest library that the ancient world ever had. And in the process of having the world's largest library, the, the King Ptolemy II, some say it was him, some say it was, who's a successor of Alexander the Great? Some say it was uh, the librarian himself. But they said, hey, we've got a massive Jewish population here. And they did. They had hundreds of thousands of Jews at this point. We've got a massive Jewish population. Let's translate the Jewish scriptures into Greek and stick it in our library. And so the king, Ptolemy II, sent to the high priest in Israel and said, send me some guys down who could do this for us. And tradition has it, 72 Jewish scholars came down. For a week they were wined and dined by the king, which was really just a job interview. He wanted to make sure they were sharp. Once he decided they were, he shipped them off to a little resort island where they were off by themselves and said, okay, crank it out. These 72 scholars produced, tradition says, the Old Testament. Nah, not really. They, what they really did is produce the Torah. But that was such a good tradition that it kind of got uh, doctored up a little bit. You know, what's a good story if you can't add to it, right? So kind of the Jews and then kind of the Christians were guilty of this. Started saying, no, there was, it was more than that. What really happened is it, the, the scholars sat down and, and all by themselves, or some think it may have been two in groups of two, they all came up with the identical same translation. All of that's probably just fable. But that the scholars came down and translated the first five books of Moses, the Torah, into Greek is accepted and well known. And the Jews found it so useful, the Jews had the rest of their scriptures translated into Greek too because there were Jews at this point living all over the world. So now you have a Greek translation of scripture called the Septuagint, which is Greek for 70 LXX are the Latin Roman numerals for 70. So that's the abbreviation for the Septuagint if you're reading a commentary and you come across it. Now, you're saying, I thought they were 72. Yeah, somewhere along the way they just kind of rounded it down. Nobody knows why, but it's good because otherwise you'd have LXXII. It'd take up a lot more room. Um, so, and it'd be called something different than the Septuagint. And who remembers Greek for 72? 
but everybody can remember the Greek for 70, so it's the Septuagint. The early church used the Septuagint, used it extensively. Paul quotes it extensively, saying, well, how can you tell? You can tell by the Greek words that he's using. He's quoting them from the Septuagint. And there came a time where the Jews in the first century didn't like the church using the Septuagint. Do you know why? Because of Isaiah 7.14. If you're reading your Hebrew in Isaiah 7.14, it says that the, the, the Alma, which is probably a virgin, but technically could be a young maiden that's not a virgin, shall bear a child. And the church seized on that as the prophecy of the virgin birth. You see, the Jews said, well, it doesn't have to mean a virgin. Alma could be a young maiden who's lost her virginity. And so uh, uh, the scriptures don't necessarily say that there's going to be a virgin birth. And the Christians were able to say, yeah, but you know, about 200 years before Jesus was born, your Jewish scholars translated Hebrew into Greek. And when they did that, they used the Greek word parthenos, which is a virgin. So your scholars understood that it meant virgin because they chose the Greek word for virgin instead of the Greek word for young maiden. Isn't God's hand incredible? And so it's at that point that the Jews started saying, well, we're not sure we like this Septuagint anyway. And what had originally been fabled as word for word, exact, bomb, 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 was now all of a sudden, hey, well, maybe they messed up on Isaiah 7:14. Maybe they should have chosen a different word. So the early church seized and used the Septuagint, which was also there to feed the Greek world because the church at this point is so far beyond the Hebrew boundaries. If God had not seen fit to translate the Bible into Greek, the church would have been adrift without Scripture. The hand of God in this is incredible. It truly is incredible. So... That's it. Now, let's talk about the Apocrypha for a minute. We've got a few more moments. Apocrypha uh, comes from the Greek. It means uh, hidden books. And uh, for some, that's a, a, a negative term, a, a derogatory term, a pejorative term. Oh, the Apocrypha, like these hidden books. And yet, for some, it's also a very positive term. Yeah, these are the books that not a lot of people knew about. So, so the word's actually used uh, positively by those who believe in the Apocrypha and negatively by those who don't. It's like the bumper sticker uh, that I heard about that uh, all Democrats and Republicans are buying now. It says, run, Hillary, run. And the Democrats put it on the back bumper and the Republicans on the front bumper. <laughs> kind of works for both. Um, Anyway, that's the same with the word apocrypha. It's kind of a win-win deal. Um, the apocrypha was uh, uh, removed by Martin Luther. Um, Martin Luther took it out. Uh, Martin Luther did so in the Protestant Reformation. We'll study it in more detail, uh, uh, but let me tell you briefly why. He said, first of all, it was never in the Hebrew canon, and the church took the Jewish scriptures. The Jews did not recognize the apocrypha as part of their scripture. Were they holy writings? Yes, but not scripture. There's a difference. They weren't in any of the scripture. Um, not referred to by Jesus. Jesus refers to a ton of the Old Testament. Not just Jesus, but the New Testament writers quote almost every book in the Old Testament in some way, shape, form, or fashion. 
Never touched the Apocrypha. It's not mentioned. Um, it wasn't included even by the early Roman Catholic scholars. Jerome, who translated the Bible for the, the, the Roman Catholic Church into Latin in the 400s, he said, this doesn't belong in Scripture. So for these reasons, wasn't included. Um, next subject, order of the books. Why do we have the books in the order we do, the Old Testament books? Well, first of all, the law comes first. And the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, is kind of in chronological order. And that's the way they were probably kept. But if you think about it, you got a bunch of scrolls in the ark. The Jews didn't really have an order in that sense because you just got all these scrolls, right? I mean, what order do you have your scrolls in? Well, it depends how do they pack better, okay? But there are writings that indicate that the Jews thought in categories and thought in orders. And so while some of the order gets kind of fuzzy because they're just a bunch of scrolls, we do know that they had the law first. And after the law, they had the prophets. And they divided the prophets up. This is interesting. You had four former prophets. You know what the former or early prophets are? Joshua, Judges, Ruth, no, Messed it up. Samuel and Kings. Okay? They, they only had one Kings. We have two. We divided it. Okay? Theirs was not divided. Those are the four former prophets, so that came next. Then they had the four latter prophets. The four latter prophets were Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the twelve. We call them the minor prophets. They put them all together on one scroll. Okay? Now, in addition to those prophets, there was this third category by the time of Christ. It's called the other writings. Sometimes they were just included as prophets, other times other writings. But this is where they put Psalms and Proverbs and Job and the Song of Solomon and Ruth and Lamentations, although sometimes they'd add Ruth on to the end of Judges. Um, Lamentations, sometimes they'd add on to the end of Jeremiah. So you'd have 24 or 22 books, depending on which scholar you were looking at. Esther, I mean Ecclesiastes, Esther, Daniel, Ezra, and Nehemiah, which were combined into one. And then Chronicles. Now think about it. Chronicles is the last book in the Hebrew canon. Chronicles retells the story that you find in Kings. And so some scholars believe that historically it may have developed later in the canon, and that's why it was added. But the interesting thing is, is while some of those book orders change, that was the book order at the time of Christ. It was Genesis to Chronicles. And that's why Jesus says... This generation will be responsible for the blood of all the prophets from Abel to Zechariah. That's in Luke 11.50. Okay. Abel, we know, was the first one to die, right? Genesis, Cain and Abel. Yeah. Zechariah is not the last one to die. The last one to die is Uriah from Jeremiah 26, time-wise. Zechariah died 200 years earlier, but... Zechariah is the last one to die in the book of Chronicles. See, and Jesus knows his, his Old Testament, his scriptures are Genesis to Chronicles. So like we'd say, you know, from Genesis to Revelation. Jesus is saying from Genesis to Chronicles. Cause, not because his Bible quit after our Chronicles in our order, but Chronicles was at the end for him. So that's why he says from Abel to Zechariah. Um, Christian orders of book, we don't use the Jewish order. We get our order from the Septuagint that the early church continued to copy 
even after the Jews at the end of the first century uh, basically fled from it. So from the Septuagint, and then it was put together in books and not scrolls, which is why they had to come up with an order. They've got the narrative Old Testament and chronology. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st, 2nd Chronicles. See, we booted up there because we're following chronology. And then we hit the other writings. And that's where we put uh, uh, the Psalms, Proverbs, Job. That's where those things come in. Uh, and then our prophets who are what we would consider more classic prophets as opposed to like Joshua. Um, so now um, we're out of time. Uh, okay, here, uh, last slide. Jesus said, don't think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. That should be in white so you can read it better. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, by any means will disappear from the law until everything's accomplished. This was a dilemma for the church, okay? It was a dilemma because the, the church is, is fleeing from Judaism, and yet the church has scriptures that, that Jesus said not a dot would disappear from. So what's the church do? They come up with bizarre ways to interpret the Old Testament scriptures. We will get into those, but here are your points for home in the future, not today. We have a rich heritage in scripture. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. He ensures that it stands forever. He ensures that it stands forever. He's worked through many in history to secure us his inspired word. He got it in Greek before it needed to be in Greek. He got it in English. He got it in Latin. He's got scripture for us. And it's God-breathed and it's useful for teaching. It's useful for rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Worth memorizing. 2 Timothy 3.16. Mom made us memorize that in home by like second or third grade. Make your kids learn it. They'll grow up respecting scripture as they ought and they'll realize that it's there and it's useful for these things as they get older and need it. And we're remiss if we fail to take time to study the Bible. I mean, again, Timothy, 2 Timothy, do your best. Study to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the Bible. And that's what this class is ultimately about. Pray with me, please. Father, I pray your blessing on this class. I pray your blessing on everybody in here. I pray that your word will dwell richly in their hearts and convict them of the, the love that you have for us and the finished work of Jesus on the cross. Bring us back together again soon, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.